Hi, everybody. I am Leslie Manukian, president and founder of Health Freedom Defense Fund. And I am absolutely delighted and honored to have Patrick Wood of technocracy.news here today, um, multiple author to join me as my guest to discuss some of the most important issues facing human beings and Americans. Um, let me just say thank you for being here, Patrick. Um, you are a, a leading and critical expert on sustainable development, green economy, agenda 21, 2030 agenda and historic technocracy. Um, Patrick is the author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, and also co-author of Trilateral, Trilaterals over Washington. Patrick is a leading expert on the elitist Trilateral Commission, which we'll go into. I'm sure a lot of people don't know about that. Um, the Trilateral Commission's policies and achievements in creating their self-proclaimed new international economic order, which is the essence of the sustainable development agenda that we are dealing with on a global scale. Patrick, thank you so much for being here. I've been looking forward to this. Scott, thank, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that you've been looking forward to it. It's going to be so fun. Um, so the first thing I really want to ask you is, you know, you have been in this for a long time. Um, you are very familiar with the nomenclature surrounding sustainability, technocracy, all these issues. Can you please explain to our viewers what technocracy really is? It's your website, technocracy.news, your book, Technocracy Rising. What does it mean? Somebody uh, introduced me. I, had, I did an interview in South Africa and the, the guy was really good, actually good interviewer, but he, he introduced me as the living expert on technocracy. <laughs> that shortened it right down. It has turned out that way that I have developed this expertise in technocracy for many years now. I've been talking about it for at least probably 14, 15 years. Um, but I wanna go back even further. I'm one of the probably few people alive today that has a critical analysis of modern globalization um, that's, that followed it from the very start. And uh, that was back in the early 1970s when what I call modern globalization started. There were significant differences and it was written about by the global elite at the time that, hey, we need to do something different. We're not getting anywhere with our old plans old strategies, so we're going to do something new. And they call it the New International Economic Order. That was their writing. And um, it was all over their literature, as a matter of fact. So in 1973, when the Trilateral Commission was formed, they said, well, this is what we're going to do, the New International Economic Order. And that was started originally by David Rockefeller, the big money guy at the time, and Zbigniew Brzezinski, a brilliant political scientist out of Columbia University. And they started this group called the Trilateral Commission to execute what they called an end run around national sovereignty to achieve their new international economic order. Um, we didn't fully understand at the time what new meant. I know that sounds silly, but <laughs> there was no frame of reference in our minds at the point. New, we thought, well, they're just going to rearrange capitalism somehow and you know, make it pay off for them instead of everybody else. And that was true to a point, but that was not the point. When I discovered historic technocracy, um, somewhere probably around, I started in earnest probably around 2006, it became immediately apparent to me that 
the Trilateral Commission's new economic, international economic order was technocracy. And there were plenty of reasons for that. One is it was new. <laughs> there had never been a uh, economic model created from scratch in the history of the world. We'd always dealt with different flavors of uh, free enterprise, you know, like uh, price-based economic systems, supply and demand, that sort of thing. If, if supply is, if demand is high and supply is low, well, prices go up and vice versa. Um, and as they say, um, necessity is the mother of invention. If people need things, somebody seems to invent stuff and then they sell it and they make profit. And, uh, you know, business has <clears throat> gone up and down in the world for all these centuries and millennia based on price-based economics of some form or another. Um, what was different about technocracy, by the way, developed at Columbia University by engineers and scientists in 1932, the purpose of the, the model of technocracy was to create a resource-based economic system, not price-based, but resource-based. It would be based on control over the resources in society that were available to support society. So uh, that meant direct control over resources of the world. Uh, that meant direct control over the consumers of those resources of the world as well. And that's exactly what they said in 1932. That's what they wanted to do is just take over the whole system, remove the political system altogether. They figured that's useless. We have science on our side, they said. So uh, if we know scientifically what people ought to do and how much should be consumed and everything, so what's to discuss? You don't need a political system. Just, we'll do it. We'll just tell you what to do. And you just go do it and everybody will be happy. And Patrick, when you talk about the they, you talked about the Trilateral Commission being founded in 1973, but now you're talking about 1932 and they, who's the they? That's well, the they back then, of course, was uh, the scientists and engineers at Columbia University. Columbia was the seat of progressivism at the time. It was the fountainhead of progressivism in America, certainly, and probably in the world. And this was viewed as kind of a progressive uh, ideology. But when capitalism was struggling during the Great Depression, 1932 is a horrible time, no doubt. Um, it didn't really, I mean, there was no mandate for these engineers and scientists at Columbia to step up and say, well, you know, we're pretty smart. We should be able to do something better. <laughs> and they, but they did. And they, they, they created this very sophisticated model of, economic, of an economic system um, that we still have with us today. And people didn't pay much attention to it back then, I have to say. It, it made a big splash for about four or five years, and then it just kind of dwindled off. Um, and, you know, I say hung out in the halls of academia, like I, radical ideas tend to do. And uh, it, it reemerged in the late 1960s, at least, uh, early 70s, it reemerged as an ideology, picked up by the global elite at that point that says, gee, we can use this system to get control of the resources of the world. And that really was kind of the, the bottom line of it. it, it you know, I don't want to overthink it and make it over sophisticated. It was a resource grab by the global elite. When they, saw, when they saw the light on that with technocracy, that they could use that to get resources into their hands and out of our hands, um, they set about a very sophisticated plan to do it. 
And, you know, like the big ocean liner out in the sea, you can't just turn it on a dime, right? It, you, it takes a long time to turn an ocean liner or a big ship. And likewise, the global economy is not something that you can just go flip and turn and all of a sudden you're going in another direction. It would take time. And the last 50 years have been um, dedicated to that goal, ultimately, of getting rid of capitalism and free enterprise and instituting this new system of resource-based economy. This is what we see today. Maybe we'll get to explain it in a minute, but this is what we see today with the United Nations Program for Sustainable Development. That is a resource-based economic system. It's what we see at the um, World Economic Forum with their so-called Great Reset. They are, the, the WEF, by the way, is very tight with the United Nations. It's hard to tell where one begins and the other ends, um, but their policies are totally intertwined. So you see in America, you see things like uh, the, uh, the Green New Deal uh, that made a big splash a year and a half ago, and it's still there, of course where everything is going to be reorganized in society. They want to get rid of uh, all fossil fuels. They want to, um, you know, have people ride bicycles and use their foot power more and get out of cars. And they want to change our diet, uh, you know, get away from all the stuff we love to eat and we should eat insects, insect protein or something. It's just absolutely insane. Synthetic food, synthetic meat, Syn and, and synthetic who owns food. all the who who owns a stake in all the big meat synthetic yeah. meat producers in America is Bill Gates. Yeah, that's right. So we see this. We see the global elite today. Um, as we, for instance, as we look at the World Economic Forum and the people, there, there's a thousand companies right now that are following along the kind of membership of the World Economic Forum. Uh, those thousand companies are the largest companies in the world. They represent probably 80% of the gross domestic product in the world. They're huge. They have huge power. But the makeup of that group today is roughly the same as the makeup of the Trilateral Commission in 1973. They had, of course, directors and CEOs of giant corporations. They had banks represented. Um, they had uh, politicians, they had uh, lawyers, they had media companies that were involved with them as well to spread the propaganda. Um, and while the Trilateral Commission kind of people kind of hid out from public view in the 70s and 80s, today, through the auspices of the World Economic Forum, they're in plain sight now. They're, they're holding nothing back. There's no secrets whatsoever about their intentions, about their plans. And you can, anybody, not just you, but I, you probably have, but anybody can go to the World Economic Forum and read their blog and see what they're saying. It is without you excuse. Mean it's not a conspiracy theory? <laughs> <laughs> myself, and I have to say this, and not to brag, but myself and my, my co-author, Anthony Sutton, back in that day, um, who was head gotten bounced out of Stanford University. He was a research fellow at the Hoover Institution for War, Peace and Revolution. World-class writer and researcher is amazing. Um, by the time we started in on the Trilateral Commission as a research project and started producing our newsletter, 
uh, which is called Trilateral Observer at the time. And we later converted all of those issues into a book, actually two books. But um, we were kind of the stimulus that led the global elite to come up with the term conspiracy theory. <laughs> and that's what they used against us. That's how they smeared us. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, they're just spinning tails. No, we never spun a tail, not once. Um, because of Sutton's superior research skills, we were able to get a hold of all of the published writings of the Trilateral Commission from day one. They had a magazine, they had a journal, they had papers that uh, their scholars had written, you know, for different universities and highfalutin, uh, you know, like uh, policy review and world, uh, you know, big, big time academic journals. He was able to get all that stuff. And we just sat down and read it. Just like we do today when we go to the Worthy Comic Forum website. We just sat down and read it. We said, gee, this sounds like, we don't like that. And so we just started writing about it and saying, well, this is what they said. Patrick, why do you think they put all this information in plain view? Like a, a lot of the nation, yes. right? Those who call us conspiracy theorists say, yes. well, if it was a conspiracy, they'd never put it out there in the public view for you to watch. They'd, they'd hide it. They would conceal it. Yeah. What's your yes. view on that? Well, at this point, I think they... Well, there's two, two, two ways I could explain this, and I'm kind of ambivalent on it, I guess. One is that they're overplaying their egotistical hand, that they figure, we got this, you know, the world is screwed, we got this, and we're just going to, we're going to uh, blow the trumpet for the whole world to hear, you know, like we got enough people, we got the United Nations behind us with, with all of their uh, penetration into countries around the world. And all we need to do is blow the trumpet and the whole world is just going to cave in our direction. <clears throat> um, the other, you know, the other way to look at it is that they're just tooting their horn because they have to, <laughs> you know, they're like compelled. Um, megalomaniac personalities have a desperate need to brag about their plans. This is, a, by the way, this is the way a lot of criminals are caught by the by police, you know, by law enforcement agencies. Um, after a crime is committed, the foolish person that committed the crime brags to somebody, mm -hmm. a family member, a friend, you know, somebody in a bar, well, you know, you know what I did last week, man, I did this, that, and the other. And word gets out, the police come and say, we heard what you were saying and you were under arrest. So there's that aspect to it. I'm not sure which is which right now. I, you know, my feeling is that Klaus Schwab, as I just watch him on videos, he's the, the founder and organizer of um, the World Economic Forum. As, you know, as you look at him, just his demeanor and the way he speaks, smug, um, smug. he's very certain that he has control of the world. Yeah. You know, I think there's another explanation. Certainly, um, many people I've spoken with have suggest that I mean, I personally believe this. We are spiritual beings having a physical experience and there are certain spiritual laws and one of them is about consent. And so as long as they put it out there, if you don't fight back, if you don't stand up and say no, if you just comply, then it's on you. 
you have tacitly consented. It's an interesting way of looking at it, but um, I think it's another potential explanation for why it's there for anybody to read. And of course they control the media so much they can just deride us, but it's there if you wanna see yes. it, if you care to avail yourself of the information. Yes. So then it's on you, it's not on them, yes. what they're trying to accomplish. You know? Yes, I, I, and I would agree with that too. <clears throat> Whether it's causative or not, it, 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 it's true. It's exactly what's happened. And this is this uh, this phenomena is played against us all the time. All the Absolutely. time. Continuously. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you didn't, you know, well, I this is what we heard at the United Nations starting from day one. Everything was voluntary, they said. Everything was voluntary. Oh, it's all voluntary. There's no nobody's forcing anybody to do anything. And then all of a sudden, you know, like they're still saying this today, it's a voluntary program. But so how come everybody in the world is following after sustainable development in the United Nations and stuff, and they're sucked into all their programs? Now they can't get out. They can't get out of these programs once you're in them. And they say, well, it was all voluntary, and which means you did it to yourself. <laughs> you know, what are you whining about? You did it to yourself. We just offered you the fentanyl. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, and you took it. So it wasn't my fault that I offered you the fentanyl. It's you took it. And if you're dying from an overdose, don't blame me. It was voluntary. You didn't have yeah. to buy it for me. No, exactly. Exactly. It's crazy. So, so you have this, you have accomplished so much. You are so incredibly knowledgeable. You have this breadth and depth of experience and knowledge. It's not strictly health freedom, right? What I do is health freedom. But what I'm really wondering is, even though your work's not strictly about that, um, you're raising awareness about these other issues which threaten our sovereignty. And I'm wondering, like, why do you do what you do? What got you involved in this? And what does health freedom mean to you? Here we are today in April of 2022. What does it mean to you? Yeah. Well, when I originally <clears throat> uh, partnered with Anthony Sutton, um, it was, uh, I, I said, it was like a, I'll just call it a divine appointment that we met in the first place. It was so bizarre. We both attended a gold conference independently. I didn't have any idea who he was, but back then gold bugs were kind of the thing, you know, there's conferences on gold and precious metals and stuff because gold had been decoupled from the dollar and gold is going up. And there was a community of a few thousand people around the country that were really into gold. I, I was one of those. So I went to a gold conference down in New Orleans from Scottsdale, Arizona down to New Orleans. And here I was in this hotel in, uh, in uh, New Orleans. I think it was close to the, you know, party, the party area. And uh, they, they were overbooked. Uh, the conference had way too many people in it. Uh, they just didn't know they, you know, but people started coming and, um, the little restaurant they had in the in the hotel was so crowded one morning i went down to breakfast and uh, oh my gosh there's a line out the door I was, oh i'm in trouble <laughs> and i'm starving to death and they said it's european style folks uh if you want to eat well european style some some people won't know what that is but what, what it is is when your turn comes up we'll seat you where there's an empty chair it doesn't matter what table it's at <laughs> so so you end up sitting with total strangers mm -hmm. and that's not my cup of tea in the morning for sure. But they sat me down at a two person table across from Anthony Sutton. And 
And I'm thinking, oh, I don't even want to talk to this guy, you know, I mean, but we had to because we were face to face, nose to nose. And I, I discovered immediately he was British because he had a British accent, which fascinated me. You know, I always have loved to hear people speak, you know, from Britain. And we started talking and sharing what we knew. And I had independently been studying the Trilateral Commission already for a couple of years. Didn't know what it meant. I was a young guy. I, I was in over my head, literally, but I knew it was big trouble, big story. And I was still trying to figure it out. Sutton was there, and he also had been studying the Trilateral Commission at the Hoover Institution. That's what got him fired from there. Because well, the president of Stanford was a member of the Trilateral Commission. It was David Packard of Hewlett Packard back in those days. So uh, he was studying this too and had no place to write about it because he'd lost his university status and he was just kind of floating, you know? And I said, darn, we're, we're talking about the same thing here. By the time we were done with that meal, um, we shook hands on, on the need to publish what we knew, what we were finding. This, we said the story is so big that we simply cannot let it pass. We must write about this. And, you know, you, you, get that kind of, you get that kind of thing in your heart. I'm sure maybe you have experienced it somewhere along the way because you kind of, did, I know, as I understand, kind of did a career switch along the way. But when you get something in your heart that you know is the biggest story of the century, you just can't sit on it and do nothing about it. You just can't. That's complicity at that point, you know, I guess. But we had a just a burning passion at that point to expose what was going on with the Trilateral Commission. And it just so happened, again, odd coincidence, that I happened to be running a printing business in Scottsdale, Arizona at the time, printing newsletters and um, direct mail uh, packages and stuff for people that were doing newsletters back then. And it was the perfect format for us to write a newsletter and to also to print a book. Uh, ultimately, and we did. So we just started cranking this stuff out, doing the research and putting it out. And I I'd crank up the printing presses, and we'd send out, you know, tens of thousands of newsletters around the country uh, on a subscription basis. Um, but <clears throat> all that, all that to say, when this started, we knew it was a big story. As time has gone on, especially when I discovered historic technocracy. The story got even bigger. <laughs> I know that's kind of fantastical to say. Maybe I'm the only one that can understand that. But the story got measurably bigger when I discovered historic technocracy because it put roots to the tree mm -hmm. that we never saw. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow. It's the same thing. That's exactly what was the impetus behind me making The Greater Good, the movie on the documentary on vaccines that I made. Um, I discovered this and I was like, this is huge. Children are being injured and killed yes. by these shots and it's being covered up. And then when I started to realize that polio wasn't really polio, it was actually neurotoxicity and that they had changed the diagnostic criteria to make it look like polio went away when they introduced the vaccine. And the same thing had happened with smallpox where the people who got the shots were actually more likely to get sick. I mean, I was of course, it still persists. People still don't realize, but these things are very, very deep. Very, very yes. deep. Yeah. Yes, they're. Yeah, it really so, is. So, tell me, how does how do you think about health freedom with that background and and that is you know context? 
Well, I'm going to read you a couple of quotes. That's I kind of knew you were headed that way, and I um, uh, I'm going to see if I can find these uh, these two quotes here. Yes, I can. This is good. <clears throat> um, back in well, I, I'm yeah, I'm just trying to think where to start. I could start from 1932, but I don't think I'll do that. I think I'll just start with uh, <clears throat> with the 1992 uh, Earth Summit, which was in Rio de Janeiro, that's the summit that produced Agenda 21, which was the agenda for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. um, that's where sustainable development was born, right? As a doctrine, as a global doctrine, that's, I argue that's technocracy. Um, the entire Agenda 21 program and sustainable development was created by a United Nations commission called the Brundtland Commission. It operated from 83 to 87. It was chaired by Gru Harlem Brundtland from Europe, a member of the Trilateral Commission. She was the primary architect and author of the book, Our Common Future, that later became the seed document for the Agenda 21 conference. Now, that's, she's highly acclaimed as the mother of sustainable development by the United Nations itself. I'm not making this up. But it was trilateral policy that was given to the United Nations for sustainable development. Okay. Um, they had in view at the time that they were going to control all the resources of the world. Okay. Not just the real estate, not just the, the drilling, not just the gold, the agriculture timber, the water, the fish, not, you know, all the resources of the world, we typically think that, well, that's, that's the resources of the world, air, the air we breathe, the water we get in our house, and so on. Well, unbeknownst to most at the time, for sure, because it was too fantastical, all resources also includes you and me. Because we're resources to them. Human resources. <laughs> human resources. That's right. There's just make no bones about it. We are human resources and we're a resource just as much as the cattle in the field, the pigs in the trough, yep. <laughs> whatever. 100%. We're just animals, okay, to them. We're resources to be controlled. I'll tell you how this. And harnessed. That's right. To uh, their, and harnessed. Their and harnessed. That's right. To be used for their benefit. Mm -hmm. And this was always in view. When I went back and, and read the uh, reread documents from the 1930s, I saw this all over the place. I didn't really recognize it the first time through, but I saw it clearly later that they intended to, to, to manage all of the resources of the world, it included people. But <clears throat> during the period of time when uh, Rio de Janeiro was underway, uh, there was people came from all over the planet to go to that convention. There was the I think 187 countries ended up signing the treaty for the Agenda 21 document. In parallel to the Agenda 21 track, there was also the Biodiversity Convention that was running. Uh, and it was, it was very tightly integrated with the Agenda 21 track. But you know how conferences are, right? You can have one conference, but you can have multiple tracks at the same conference. You know, like if you had a medical conference, you might have the heart thing, you might have the intern, you might have, uh, you know, pulmonary, whatever. I mean, you could have different tracks going on within the same convention. And that's what the Biodiversity Convention was all about. It was right, uh, it, it kind of 
provided practical explanations on, well, how would this really work, this Agenda 21? What would it mean? What, what is sustainable? What isn't sustainable? So they produced this 1,200-page book, <laughs> weighs about 10 pounds, that gave all the criteria and details for what Agenda 21 would Anyway, at the, well, at the, uh, the, the Rio conference, the, there was two people that attended as principals to that whole process. Uh, they were fairly high-level academics. They went to, um, they went in hopes that there would be some reformation in the world over the whole development issue, the processes that have been taking place that have been so damaging to third-world countries. And they they were kind of the original greens, if you will, you know, the original environmentalists. They came away pretty disillusioned from uh, from the whole conference, and they wrote a book two years later called The Earth brokers. The idea is that the Rio Convention essentially brokered the earth <laughs> into other hands. It didn't really solve the problems for that the rest of the world wanted to solve, but indeed it just kind of was, it was going to push the world into um, another existence that would that would just you know crush it even further. And this book was really instrumental, and I I quote it a lot because these these were not people that were on the conservative side of the spectrum at all they were critics of their own movement. So that makes their testimony even more powerful to me. Um, <clears throat> but here's what they wrote in this book, just to set the stage. We argue that UNSAID, that stands for United Nations uh, Conference on Economic Development, UNCED, UNSAID, I'll call it UNSAID. We argue that UNSAID has boosted precisely the type of industrial development that is destructive for the environment, the planet, and its inhabitants, we see how, as a result of unsaid, the rich will get richer, the poor poorer, while more and more of the planet is destroyed in the process. That's pretty, that's profound. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just huge. They said, yeah, disingenuous at its core. So then they wrote not only on Agenda 21, but also on the Biodiversity Convention. And this is where it gets really interesting. Uh, and again, remember, this is 1994, before a lot of the modern technology we, we have today was not in existence yet. <clears throat> but this is what they wrote on page 42 and 3. Said, they said, the convention implicitly equates the diversity of life, animals and plants. And remember, you're an animal. <laughs> well, you're not, but I mean, they think you're an animal. Uh, it equates the diversity of life, animals and plants, to the diversity of genetic codes. By doing so, diversity becomes something modern science can manipulate. It promotes biotechnology as being, quote, essential for the conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity. Now, this was a sea change in the definition of what you and I might think of as biodiversity being, well, the, the, you know, there's froggies in the forest and there's, there's snakes in the grass and there's birds in the sky. This was not their definition of biodiversity. It had to do with genetic codes and manipulating genetic codes. They went on to say the main stake raised by the biodiversity convention, not the minor stake, not just one stake. They said the main stake, which means that this was the incessant talk that was going on at the biodiversity convention. I'll start again on the quote. The main stake raised by the Biodiversity Convention 
is the issue of ownership and control over biological diversity. The major concern was protecting the pharmaceutical and emerging biotechnology industries, close quote. Yeah. Now, you can see now, I, I hope very clearly, why we are where we are today with messenger RNA-based vaccinations, experimental use authorization only in most places in the world, have been used to inject humanity with, with, with a templating system that potentially could change the DNA structure of the human germline. It does. This we is huge. That. This is, we do know that it actually does now. That's been demonstrated. <clears throat> it it actually inserts into yeah. the nucleus of the cell and uh, changes the genetic, the, the DNA inside the nucleus. So it, it actually does. They, they promised well, us it didn't, <clears throat> but it does. It, it enters the cell and it changes the genetic imprint, the genetic yes. imprint of the human being, for right. sure. So here's how, here's how we've seen this play out from 92 to 2022, let's say 30 years, right? Just 30 short years. <laughs> short to me, maybe not so short to you. <laughs> In 30 years, what we have seen by what I just read, we have seen Monsanto, for instance, modify, well, Monsanto and a few other companies like them, modify virtually every crop seed on the earth. They have patented those seeds. They own those seeds now. They license those seeds for growth in, in, the, farmer, in the fields of farmers and ranchers and so on. You've seen <clears throat> genetic modification of insects. This is in the news right now with uh, a company called Oxitec out of Great Britain is producing genetically modified mosquitoes to wipe out mosquito populations that they say carry horrible diseases and whatever, but that's another story. But uh, you, you see genetic modification of fish, where, for instance, uh, salmon are now genetically modified to grow twice as fast as the natural species of fish, so they can be farm-raised. Yeah. And now you have seen the genetic modification of animals and all over the place on animals, and birds as well, include them. Uh, where you have um, uh, pigs that are double muscled, where you have actually one experiment had um, a transgenic uh, experiment, uh, put jellyfish genes for luminescence into pigs and the pigs ended up glowing in the dark. <laughs> the, the, the pigs, I mean, the, the offspring, right? They glowed in the dark when you hit them with a black light. Um, <clears throat> so you've seen all these different uh, and oh, well, bacteria and has have been modified as well for all kinds of different purposes, uh, like oil spills, for instance. Okay, and they're using uh, now genetically modified bacteria. Well, there's two other aspects to genetic modification that are not they're, they're way beyond just natural selection, which which farmers used to do, where they would just cross species of not species, but they'd cross. Um, uh, plants with each other to develop certain characteristics in the offspring, and that that was uh, that was an art form, really. Many many farmers saved their own seed stock from year to year so that they could continue to plant their superior seeds. Well, 
you have regular genetic modification now with tools like CRISPR uh, that allow snipping from here and putting over here. But more dangerously, you have uh, a technique called a transgenic uh, modification where you take a snippet of genetic code out of a different species altogether and you put that into the species over here. And uh, then in addition to that, you have another discipline of genetic modification, which has to do with this outright synthesis from scratch of genetic code and put that into another, you know, into another species, like whether it be a seed or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, all of these things- if They took been... a fish gene and put it into a tomato to make them more resistant to cold, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. And just so people know, the reason that they do this genetic modification, one of the reasons is because they can't patent naturally occurring things. You can't patent a naturally occurring tomato, but you can patent a genetically modified one. Sorry, I just want right. people to understand that. Exactly right. So <clears throat> here, before 2020 came around, with the, um, the, great the great panic of 2020, I call it, but it's the pandemic. Uh, everything else on earth had been genetically modified. That would be perfectly understandable if you understand what happened at the Biodiversity Convention in 1992. This was what they said they were going to do back then. This was their goal. This was the main stake of the whole thing that, that brought something like 200,000 people together to talk about Agenda 21 from all over the world. And this doctrine was spread all over the world immediately when these people signed it, you know, when nations of the world signed it. So um, with all the other species of the world already modified genetically, we now just are getting a taste as they set their target on humanity itself. We're saying in their mind, we're going to genetically modify humanity now to recreate, essentially to recreate a better species of humans. And this is where this whole messenger RNA stuff has come up. And you're right, in one sense, you've got messenger RNA being stuck into people's arms. But I would remind listeners that in India, uh, a biotech company there has released a straight DNA injection that goes under the skin, not in the muscles, it goes under the skin. And it directly modifies your DNA down to the germline, <laughs> yeah, which well, means the, your the, offspring will inherit it. Of course, the J&J &J shot is a DNA shot as well. It's not an mRNA shot. It's a DNA shot. It's double strands of genetic material, and it's carried in something called an adenovirus or adenovirus, <clears throat> which has fats around it, which then facilitates it entering your cells. So very much so. Yep. What's really interesting to me about what you just said is something you know, the Rockefellers and the Carnegies funded the Flexner Report in order to tell Congress that we needed to standardize and license all hospitals and doctors basically to basically transfer control and therefore the money associated with it to a central location to them who were chemical and petrochemical um, magnets. But what's interesting also about that is that then that feeds into FDA and UN and all the things that you just spoke about. But Julian Huxley and UNESCO, they talked about these things as well. They did. 
when did Julian Huxley basically say that, you know, and, and it feeds into the eugenics yes. um, agenda. Can you talk a little bit about that, Patrick? Sure, yeah. It was, um, it was Julian Huxley, of course, that was instrumental in creating the United Nations in the first place. He uh, was the founder of UNESCO and served as, a, as president for several years. And he was certainly no friend of humanity, in my opinion. But he also had a brother that people know a lot about, and that is Aldous Huxley. Yeah. They were both from Great Britain, by the way. They're both Brits. Um, Aldous Huxley wrote a book in 1932, the same year the technocracy was at Columbia University. I'll exp explain that story a little bit more. It's really interesting. But um, uh, I believe through my studies and, and original research that Huxley was writing, that, that Aldous Huxley was writing about technocracy when he created the book Brave New World. Brave New World is now in the English vernacular. You know, anything bad, you know, anything happened, oh, it's a brave new world, isn't it? And yeah. I have no idea what, you know, that, that it was a book. <laughs> he yeah, went, no. what's a, I've read it twice. It's amazing. Uh, it is. And, and people don't know as well that Aldous Huxley was George Orwell, who wrote 1984's Teacher. And he yeah. told Orwell, no, 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 you're wrong. 1984 is wrong. My approach that people will volunteer for their own enslavement is the right way, is what's going to happen. So go ahead. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there was, uh, I, I believe that there was good reason for, for Orwell to be looking at technocracy as he penned that book. Yep. And part of the reason was because of the megalomaniac president of Columbia University at the time, his name was Nicholas Murray Butler. Uh, they, they called him in the industry, miraculous Nicholas. You know, the, the guy was just, he was over the top progressive for one, but he was a hobnobber, spent most of his time in Europe. They, they used to complain about, well, where, do he, where is he? Well, he's over talking with Benito Mussolini or somebody in Europe. And so he was, he was a name dropper and he loved the social life in Europe and in England. And so there was no doubt that, that Huxley and Butler would have crossed paths. And at the time in 1932 and just before, technocracy was the gem of Columbia University because they thought, oh, you know, oh man, this is new scientific revolution. We got all the engineers working on it. The scientists are working on it and we're creating this great, great new thing. It's gonna save the world, you know? And so Butler was over in Europe touting his great achievements at, at Columbia University. One person said to me when I told him about Columbia, they in uh, another PhD, by the way, from somebody out in the West, uh, some school in the West. He's, he shook his head. He said, "Did anything good ever come out of Columbia?" <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't have any experience with Columbia, but I chuckled because, you know, that was his opinion. Well, what what good did ever come out of Columbia? Well, Brave New World. If you haven't read the book. Go to a used bookstore and get it. You can usually two two dollars, three dollars. It's they're, they're, they printed millions of these things. Go get it and read it. It's a short read, half a day. You're gonna have it all. And in fact, there's a movie on. Uh, you can go to YouTube and listen to the movie if you want to, called um, um, Brave New World by the same title. <clears throat> but what happened in Brave New World is all babies were genetically modified, engineered in test tubes, so well, not test tubes, but incubators. Decanted. That's right. And um, they, they were engineered mentally to, uh, to be appropriate for the different levels of work that they were going to be assigned to. 
So you had the deltas, the gammas, and so on. You had the alphas that were at the top of the thing. They ran everything. The betas were, you know, below them, middle managers. And you had the the lowest one. I think were I think were the gammas, as I remember. Uh, yeah. And 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 they were so happy with their work uh, because they didn't know any better. They were basically mentally retarded. Yeah. <laughs> but, when they played, they as they were growing these yes. babies in their decanters, they programmed them through audio tapes telling them what they would do and who they would be and all this. And then of course, yep. they self-medicated themselves with Soma, the drug that kept them happy. That's right. If you were ever unhappy or had any stress, you simply took, uh, took the little Soma pill, which you carried with you everywhere you went. Now there was no family structure. There was no, marriage was verboten. Um, everybody belonged to everybody else sexually that then there's there had to be no reservation whatsoever on that but there was no family unit and somebody fell in love with somebody else they would get punished punished for it and um of of greatest interest um to me to that i try to get through people's heads today there was no political system mm -hmm. there was none there was no committees there was nothing there was no parliament Elections. there was no it was absent from the system. This is a principal tenet of technocracy and one of the great dangers in our world today. These maniacs, I can, and I call them maniacs because I, I believe in people. I think people have a right to be people. We're human. We're not uh, cattle in a field that gets shoved around from pen to pen uh, by somebody else who doesn't even know how to raise cattle in the first place. But, you know, you, you, you look back at at that, and you look at it today, you can see the antithesis between the political system and the technocrats of the world. The technocrats are using the political structure and the politicians as useful idiots, essentially. And I'll give an example of that. Uh, even going back to President Trump, when, when this whole pandemic thing started, who was standing behind President Trump while he made the proclamations of what was going to happen. Well, it was Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks. They were ever present behind any proclamation. And who came up with those policies that came out of the lips of the president? It wasn't the president, I guarantee you. It was the people standing behind him, the Anthony Fauci's of the world. This happened in every country in the world where the politicians were manipulated to create these policies or to release these policies on the world for lockdowns, for uh, the social distancing, the masking, uh, and ultimately taking the vaccination, quote unquote, not really a vaccine, but I'll just use that, okay? Um, and the politicians went along with it. You could call it being complicit, they did. They went along with it not knowing that they were being used as useful idiots. And that phrase comes from the Bolshevik revolution, by the way, that, you know, the, the, the people that helped bring the Bolshevik revolution to fruit were ultimately slaughtered. Mm -hmm. And they called them the useful idiots. You know, we, we needed them for now, but now, you know, we don't need them, so get rid of them. Yeah. The, po the political class in the world today does not realize that if technocracy is successful, they will be wiped out. They will be gone. There will be no political system in the world. There will be no democracy. There'll be no uh, political dictatorship. 
there'll be no socialism, there'll be no communism. It's just going to be flat out scientific dictatorship, top down. And I think probably the best book in the history of literature is Brave New World to explain that. Huxley was a visionary in that regard. So two questions. Do you think Aldous was criticizing Julian or do you think he was showing the world the roadmap? And then secondly, why do you think the whole crisis has happened when it happened in the last two years? Yes, yes. I think he, I think he was uh, simply just writing a good book. It's something he saw because uh, he was pretty young back then. But I think, I think he saw an opportunity for a, for a really good book when he understood what technocracy is trying to do. Mm -hmm. So nobody else is writing about this. And remember, <clears throat> back, in the, back in, the, in the 20s and 30s, there was a whole cauldron of things happening all over the world. It was a major philosophical mix going on, toss green solid, if you want to call it. Mm -hmm. you know, there was the communists, there was the socialists. Uh, there was all kinds of splinters of religious philosophies going on back then that were hot debates. And, and then you had technocracy coming into it. Well, technocracy was really new because it focused on technology as being the way mankind is going to be saved. And, the, and everybody knew that by that time that the scientific revolution was something the wave of the future. So there was special interest in technocracy. Uh, I think because of that, you know, just the the fascination with with technology in general, and so I think Huxley probably it's just my guess, but I think he probably saw that topic and he said, "Dude, that's that's a great book. I'm going to just extrapolate this out to the natural logical end where where it would go." And he came up with Brave New World, the book. Um, I don't, and I wouldn't want to overcomplicate it any more than that. But you know, that's just kind of my opinion. Could he have been inspired, you know, inspired by, you know, demonic forces or something, as some people suggested? Maybe, but maybe not. I mean, it's, you know, I wouldn't speculate on that. I think his, his um, comments to George Orwell are very interesting, though, yes. that he said my view is going to play out and be yes. the right one. Yes. You know? yes, and of course, they had those discussions, and pretty much both of them had the same end in mind. One got there by pain, that's 1984. Yeah. One got there by pleasure, which is Brave New World. And yeah. they kind of both came to the same conclusion in the end. And Orwell, I think, probably described it just as good as anybody. He said, just imagine uh, a jack, you know, a boot stamping on your face forever. <laughs> Either way, I mean, it, that's what it is. It's that's like, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I forget where we're going with the question. I do <laughs> I think um, I had asked if um, um, what you thought about Aldous writing the book and what he was trying to do. And then what was it about? It was about health freedom, I think is what it was, but we can move on. I can't remember. Well, um, I know I can't. Oh, I can't no. Accept. Why now? Why do you think? Yeah, oh, that's right. That's right. That's, good, good why point. do you think? Because I think it's, yes. you know, it's something I talk about a lot in my presentations. If there's a financial reason for why it's happening now, but I'm really curious, why do you think? Mm -hmm. This started in 2020. Why do you think this agenda, this crisis, these all these measures have been implemented at this time? Why not 10 years ago? Why not right. in 10 years? Why is it happening right. now in your view? Right. I'm sure you've had the experience where you drive along a highway that you or a road that you drive on, say, every day to go somewhere, store, something like that. All of a sudden you look over and there's a new structure. So I'm just, whoa, 
Where'd that come from? Yeah, totally. And it's like a three-story or a five-story building or something. Where, what? What? Where'd that come from? And you never saw it before. And there's there. And so, wait, you tell people, hey, did you see that new building down there? Well, you know, here's the thing. That building went up very quickly when it finally got down to business. But you realize it may have been years in, in the process of getting built. You had to have permits, you have the architects, you had to have materials lined up, you had to get all the city council and you know, everybody else lined up, building codes, permit and uh, you know, inspections and all that kind of stuff. Well, <clears throat> that building, the five percent of the time that it took that building to go up, it took 95% of the time to get ready to get it up. And so it is with any project, truly. By the time you see it, uh, you can be sure that it had plenty of uh preparation time to get there. We've had 50 years almost of preparation for the new international economic order. And now we see the building going up and everybody's shocked to see the building going up. I'm not shocked, but listen, the, here's, here's what I wrote in 2015. I'm just writing an article right now. This isn't even published on my website right now, but I'm going to finish it when we're done here. Um, I wrote uh, here that I was the first to declare war on technocracy on December 18, 2015. That's a considerable amount of time before us, five years before it hit the fan in 2020, early 2020. Here's what I wrote. America is being meth um, methodolic. <laughs> I get my, get my words right, I try to read. It's been methodically and purposely conquered by an unseen enemy. Our shields are down, our people are asleep, our weapons are almost non-existent. The war has been waged in stealth, so the enemy has not yet been identified until now. And that's when I declared a big red bold type war on technocracy, not because we were declaring war on anybody, but they declared war on us. I'm simply responding to it. Mm -hmm. And then um, <clears throat> I wrote three days after the World Health Organization declared pandemic. The, I wrote this on February 1, 2020. Um, <clears throat> the title of the article was Coronavirus and Analysis in Relation to Technocracy. And I said it was unmistakable that the pandemic narrative was exposed as technocracy's global coup d'etat. In other words, the silent war turned hot. Mm -hmm. I concluded, and this is how I concluded in that article in uh, 2020, no matter what happens from this point forward, the economic impact of the Wuhan coronavirus will be an order of magnitude greater than the health impact. And that's exactly what's happened. This has been the coup d'etat of technocracy they've been planning for for decades. Yeah. They got enough of their criteria lined up in a row, ducks in a row, like they say, where they realized they could pull it off. And they, they have pulled it off. And what I, I'll tell you what, tip, what really tipped me off to this was not any understanding of viruses at the time, which I didn't really have any at all, uh, other than I get sick once in a while. But what tipped me off was all of the people that were jumping on the bandwagon, the pandemic bandwagon, they were the same people that the month before had been riding on the climate alarmism bandwagon. 
that the United Nations had been pushing and stumping for, you know, climate freak out, you know, you got to accept uh, sustainable development is the only answer, you know, you got to do this, you got to do it our way, let us have control of the resources and we'll, we'll take care of climate change. Well, all those nutcakes, in my opinion, that were riding that horse on global warming, their horse ran out of steam. Their horse couldn't win any more races. The last thing that happened to that poor horse was poor little Greta Thunberg at the United Nations, jumping up and down, stomping her feet, turning red and then blue, holding her breath, because as she proclaimed, your house is on fire and I expect you to do something about it. Yes, yes. It didn't get any traction. People said, ah, yawn. You know, even the United Nations yawned and she she just got nowhere. Well, at that point, when I saw all these people go over to the pandemic, I knew it was a phony narrative from, from day one. And you remember... You remember even the first study that came out of uh, England from uh, the, I want to say the London, is it London School? I forget. Imperial forget what it is College, now. probably. Yeah, Imperial College. The very first study that came out of Imperial College that said, we're going to lose millions of people and Great Britain's going to lose hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And we need to take immediate action and lock down all that kind of stuff. Um, this was the same, th- they were known or being the primary university behind climate alarmism Mm -hmm. the week before. Yeah. And now they're using the same. And I think they they said that they, um, it was Neil Ferguson and they took $79 million from the Gates Foundation in January Mm -hmm. or February of 2020, 130 million plus in the preceding couple of years, um, including the 79. And then also Ferguson was the same guy who had created these alarmist models for swine flu, I think. Yes. yes. I'm not 100% sure. Yes. And other supposed yes. pandemics. Yeah. Yes. And it's not that we shouldn't have epidemiologists in the world. I'm sure there's, you know, there's some value in that. But it's so easily twisted for other nefarious means. And the, the problem with climate alarmism, as well as this, was time after time, they were exposed for fraud in their data. You, you doesn't matter what kind of a computer program model you have, but if your data is junk, nothing is going to work right. Mm-hmm. Well, that was, that was all I needed to know that, okay, here, here we go. The, 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 the carousel has started up again and it just in a different location. And what happened after that, of course, is finally the code for Ferguson's model was released to the computer community and they examined it. it and I love that when, when that something like that happens. Yeah. And they examined his code and they said, this, this, this code is the worst sloppiest, nastiest code they've ever seen in their life. He says, piece of junk. They, and some experts ran the same computer model multiple times with the same data and got different outputs. <laughs> you do that. I'm, I spent years in the computer programming and software business industry, and that just mystifies me on how they can write such a lousy program that would come up with different outcomes using exactly the same inputs, but it did. Yeah. So his computer model was just junk. 
his moral structure was absolutely just junk as well because he was later completely discredited, got kicked off of a bunch of boards because of moral failure and because he didn't even follow his own you know, policies and stuff that he said everybody else should follow. Uh, the guy was a, is a moral train wreck, as far as I'm yeah. concerned, completely 100%. disingenuous. Yeah. This is he's, where it started. He's a this gun the, for hire. <laughs> that's right. This is where it started. And the whole thing was disingenuous. And, you know, here we are today struggling with this. Yeah. But this was technocracy's coup d'etat. So, so basically all the technology, all of the capture of the media, capture of the health agencies, capture of um, legislative pieces have all been put into place. And so the time was right, essentially, yes. to have it happen. So yes. I think we both agree mm -hmm. on that, Patrick. Yes. And we agree on very much. But um, one of the things that I have been cautioning people about is that COVID seems to be receding, right? So many people, you know, I have a local list where I had hundreds of people on it, and now most people are not interested in reading about it, right? They think that life is going back to normal. And I keep telling them, COVID may be going, going away, maybe, although Georgetown, Johns Hopkins, and Rice University just re-implemented mask mandates in the last week or so. Um, and in Britain, the NHS, the National Health Service, is calling for distancing and masking in indoor spaces and all these things. You know, so people are, I think people have a false sense of security. They think COVID's going away. What's wrong with that, Patrick? I keep telling people, no, the agenda hasn't been achieved. They're just on to the next phase of it. So what do you think about that? That's right. <clears throat> no war ever lasts with just one battle. Never in the history of the world. And this is not going to be an exception. Of course, you know, I can say that because I was the one that first declared war on technocracy in the first place. <laughs> I understand this is a war. It's a continuing war. There has, they have not achieved their objectives yet. They're targeting the year 2030 as being the big, kind of the big, you know, whatever. That's when the flag is going to wave, I guess. That's why, for instance, the World Economic Forum constantly cites 2030 as the target. You have the 2030 agenda that, uh, that the United Nations had a conference on a few years ago and they passed kind of an update to Agenda 21. 2030 is the, is the, the target to them to win this war. And Klaus Schwab says, by 2030, you'll, be you'll own nothing and be happy, mm -hmm. which is insane on the surface of it. But we have a long ways to go between now and then, because we still have a lot of stuff. We're not very happy, I have to say. And we still own a few things. But he says, no, in the end of it, you're going to own nothing, which is the natural outcome of war, by the way. Yeah. That's what war does to people. It decimates societies. It, it reduces them to rubble. Just think of Japan when the atomic bomb was dropped and what it looked like a week after. It was just flattened mm -hmm. like a pancake. Yeah. Destroyed. People had to build up from the ground up. This is where this is where war is headed. And you know what's going on today? You're right. The the the, the whole masking business and the you know the continuing shots they're, they're going to continue. There's no doubt they're going to continue. They're not going to let go of this narrative until the citizens of the world throw these knuckleheads out of public policy altogether. 
that's the only hope is, that we have in this is to get rid of the policy generators, not the politicians necessarily, but to get rid of the people behind them, the Anthony Fauci's of the world. What, and I should probably add in here, what happened with um, the, the spread of the great panic of 2020, you know, how did it take, it wasn't just Neil Ferguson. Neil yeah. Ferguson, one little cog in the wheel, but the World Health Organization had spent years going around from nation to nation to nation, signing mem uh, uh, agreements between them and uh, individual nations, uh, memorandums of understanding, and in some cases, outright treaties, where they put their name on the line and said, if this happens, we will do this, or, or if this happens, you will do what we tell you to do. That's the nature of how the, how the United Nations operates, and the World Health Organization was no different. They had laid the groundwork for this for some time. Yeah. So and now they're trying to put forward the pandemic treaty, which would right. subjugate every nation now, to the will. Right. Now that now they're the, reworking the whole thing right now. Yeah. You're right with today with the pandemic treaty, yeah. but all of those elements were already there in place. So what happened? The United the World Health Organizations and the UN sent their minions out to all of the nations of the world, saying, "Pandemic alert! Here's what you're going to do." And if anybody fought back against it, they just put the put the, the the lever on them and said, "Look, you signed this. You must do this, or you're going to lose all your benefits of being in the United Nations. You're going to have trade sanctions. You're going to have this. You're going to have that. You might even have UN troops in your country next week if you don't comply, and we will force you to wear a mask." The world knuckled under immediately. Yeah, the well, whole many, world. Many um, leaders did resist, and they are no longer with us. <laughs> you're right. They're gone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is how it spread. Yeah. And it was it was a uh, what what do you what do you call it? It was a shock and awe type. Hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. I think it's one of the way. It's the same thing. It, it it was so reminiscent of the the language and signaling under Bush when the U.S. and the U.K. invaded Iraq. Right. Shock and awe. It was the same thing. The same tactics fear, the ticker tape of cases and deaths and constant fear porn, nothing else. I was like, this is a psyop. Yes. You know? Exactly. So yeah, I'm 100% with you. So we're yeah. getting, we're almost out of time, Patrick, but I want to ask you something, which is, what do you think people can do? You know, this is incredibly challenging time for all of us and really, really challenging for young people. I mean, Growing up in this, if you are even remotely awake, has got to be incredibly depressing. And, um, you know, the evidence is that a lot of college students are really struggling. Um, there's a lot of high school kids are struggling. And, and those aren't even the kids who are probably the most impacted, which are the younger ones who have been really, truly traumatized by not seeing faces and all this stuff. But I'm trying to focus as much of my attention and I'm trying to create um, packages of information, templates that people can use to actually try and change things in their own neighborhoods. And my mantra has become globalism is the problem and localism is the solution. But I would really love to see what you see. You know, what do you suggest to your readers and followers about what they can do on an individual basis? Because most people feel very powerless about what's going on. They do. And this is exactly why I started uh, Citizens for Free Speech in 2018 was to be a countermeasure, hopefully, 
Um, we've grown exponentially since the beginning of, of this whole pandemic, by the way, but uh, we're, we're up close to 50,000 members nationally now. But free speech is the only antidote we have on this, number one. And there's a huge attack on free speech. Any war that has taken place in the last, say, 150, 200 years, for sure, uh, the first thing that the enemies that the enemy combatants do when they come in is take over the media. Always, hmm. we saw it in Russia, we saw it in Germany. I've seen it personally in Mozambique. I've seen it, in, I mean, the other places where stuff has happened in in Africa and in uh, uh, Cambodia years ago. Um, when <clears throat> when when a revolution takes place, the media is the first to be captured and turned against the people to, to put out the propaganda. We've seen Main Street media been captured completely in our country. They're, they're a joke now, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but the attacks on free speech is a full, what I call a full spectrum attack. It's everything. Look at the First Amendment. It's attack on churches, attack on free speech, attack on assembly, freedom of the press, um, redressing government for grievances. No, give me a break. <laughs> you can't do that anymore. Uh, you're, it, you, know, you, you express any concerns. Oh, you're a domestic terrorist or a domestic extremist. I get it. Now you're on a no-fly list or something. Um, so what happens when free speech is snuffed and the alternative media, like what you and I are doing right now and others that we know around the country are doing this, when alternative media uh, is ultimately silenced, if they are, uh, there will be absolutely no impediment to these people running over the world and throwing the entire planet into a, the most despotic episode in human history. This was brought out by Professor Matthias Desmet, the, the clinical uh, professor of clinical psychology in Belgium. And he's, he talked about mass formation and how that breaks down a society. We think the world is nuts. They really are. But mass formation, he says about 30% of the people get bought into this kool-aid thing where they can't think straight anymore you say they're crazy well it is as he calls it mass formation psychosis and he says another 30 to 40 percent of the people probably just fence sitters they don't they don't know what they're doing they they got you know they don't want to go over here but they don't really agree with it and they just said i'm going to shut up and sit on the fence and hopefully get through this and then you have maybe the 20 percent that um that are still not bought into it at all and just say, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. You know, I'm not wearing a mask or whatever. I must uh, forget it. Um, the chilling thing that he said at the end of this lecture, his lectures are, uh, and remember Europe is culturally sensitive to, to genocidal events. They've had several, we've really had none. Um, <clears throat> but he says, Mass formation psychosis always creates a scapegoat, always creates a scapegoat. It has to, to cover for its own inability to get anything done. Mm -hmm. So you had the intelligentsia in the Bolshevik revolution. You had the Jews and the gypsies and the blacks and so on during Hitler's experience. You've had other scapegoats. It's pretty easy to identify and understand what I'm saying when I talk about scapegoat. Today, we have the scapegoat of the unvaccinated. Hmm. Right? We have a pandemic of the unvaccinated, they say. It's yeah. your fault. The world is dying, the unvaccinated, because you won't do what we tell you to do. Well, Desmond says, when the scapegoat is silenced, 
you got to think about this. When the scapegoat is silenced, the killing begins. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. Exactly yeah. like that. Yeah, he does. When the scapegoat is silenced, the killing begins. This is the, and when we see the killing is going on today in the world, we're talk, kind of talking about here with all this, this, this crazy messenger RNA and DNA vaccines and stuff that are, you know, where athletes are dropping dead all over fields, all over the world, you know, in, in competition and stuff. And who knows how many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have died directly from taking these shots. Um, Millions, I would favor. People are dying right now. Yeah. But imagine what would happen if that whole scapegoat sector of humanity was silenced from speaking out and crying out about their plight, there would be nothing stopping them from just creating the biggest genocidal event the world has ever, ever seen before. That's why free speech is important. And when I say when we're what we do at Citizens for Free Speech, we promote free speech, but we tell people free speech has always been a locally exercised right where you use your ability to communicate and stuff to make policy changes or policy corrections in your own community. And that's at this point, since we've lost Washington, obviously, most states are lost too. The only possible line of defense we have at this point is we fall back and retreat, right? The only possible defense we have now is going to be a firewall we put around our own communities where we live. That's the only part, that's the last line of defense. After that, it's the front door of your house. Mm -hmm. And that could get ugly. <laughs> that could get really ugly. So we're focusing on helping people get into their local communities and create policy changes now and drive this, this ideology out of their communities. All these policies that have to do with sustainable development, uh, you know, technocracy related things, this health madness and so on, drive it out. And people can do that. They don't realize this because of decades of brainwashing, but they can create binding resolutions in their city that will make incredible difference on their quality of life where they live. And they can do it. All they need to do is just get out and mix it up. Um, somebody known to you, our national director of training, Mary Baker, she says, and she heard this from somebody else, but she says, if you don't have a seat at the table, you are what's for dinner. <laughs> End of training. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah, okay, I get it. So people think today that you can just kind of hide out at home and, you know, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to, you know, I want to make waves. Boat. It's unreal. You know, don't want to rock the boat. I'll, I have this, this warning for you. You cannot hide. They are coming for you. If you haven't figured this out yet, don't think that you're hiding behind a bale of hay or wherever is going to protect you from them coming for you, ultimately grabbing you by the arm and doing what they want to do with you. That's a fact. So there is no, there's no possibility mentally or in, re, in real, realistically for avoiding this war. You are going to fight in it or you're going to be destroyed by it. Yeah. To me, we're already at war. I gave a speech seven years yes. ago called we're at war with our government. <laughs> It was seven years ago because who voted 
which of us voted for GMOs or Roundup or mercury amalgams or fluoride in our drinking water or chemtrails or these jabs or any of these things. None of us voted for them. None of us want them. None of us are begging for GMO salmon or pigs or anything else, right? We don't want them, but they're being pushed on us. They're being pushed on us as part of this entire technocratic, transhumanist, sustainable agenda, right? So that's right. Yeah, I think it's um, incumbent upon each and every one of us to actually re-engage because Americans, in my view, have been asleep at the wheel for a long time, which is why this has happened. And it's, it's imperative that we start building our own communities, our own parallel systems. So we're trying to um, create a template to build independent healthcare systems, true healthcare, not sick care. Right. Schools, um, food sheds, all sorts of things, because it's so important that they that people understand that they need resilience in their own community. They need independence, <clears throat> not resilience, even more than resilience. Resilience is part of the sustainability jargon, but I think what it really is is independence. Right. I agree. So I think if we build our parallel systems. Um, when the old one falls, because I think we are, it is falling. That's what's really happening is the right. system is imploding right. um, by some <laughs> measures uh, deliberately that, you know, then we'll survive. Yep. So. I want to promote uh, our Crimes Against Humanity tour that's going to be starting very soon, in a couple of weeks, nine cities and nine weeks around America. And um, <clears throat> this is the uh, essentially the result that we had from the uh, grand jury of public opinion that uh, uh, that Dr. Reiner uh, Fulmish put on or orchestrated uh, over the last I don't know what few months I guess, and um, <clears throat> so uh, we're starting this tour uh, in Fort Myers, then Los Angeles, Chicago, Phoenix, Houston, Minneapolis, Atlanta, uh, excuse me, Atlantic City, uh, Dallas, and Tampa, Florida. So. It's going to be a grueling trip for us, but uh, I'm I'm part of the speaking team. There's just four of us that are going out for a one-day conference to discuss crimes against humanity. And the big question is, have crimes against humanity been committed in this war? We we say, yes, I believe we have the clear-cut evidence that this has happened now. People in America need to hear this now. So this is kind of the summation of everything we got out of the crimes against humanity, you know, uh, international inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, myself and, uh, Dr. Judy Mikovitz, Dr. Richard Fleming and, uh, and Fulmish himself are going to travel the country telling him, telling American people directly the story of crimes against humanity and what's happening. And I hope personally, this is a wake up call to many Americans who still don't get it, that we're in a war mm-hmm. because crimes against humanity do not ever occur outside of war. No, by definition. <laughs> Patrick, where do they, where can people find out about this? Is there a website? There is. And oddly enough, it's called crimesagainsthumanitytour.com. Tour.com. <laughs> it's okay. pretty easy. Yeah. Crimesagainsthumanitytour.com. And tickets are not expensive, but uh, we got these nine cities covered. We're starting on the 23rd of April. We'll be going into June. And um, uh, I, I just, I want to, I personally, I just love to see every venue standing room only to hear what we have to say. We've got the goods, Leslie. I, that's all I can say. We've got the goods. Too, we don't. Absolutely. There's no conspiracy theory here. No. These are facts. There's a conspiracy. <laughs> it's just not a theory. <laughs> it's just, that's right. It's not a theory and it's not us. It's them <laughs> that yes. have done it to us. Yes. 
So anyway, Patrick, I just want to say thank you so much for taking so much time out of your busy schedule to talk with me and share your incredible knowledge and experience with us. Um, I'm sure our viewers will gobble it up. Thank you very, very much. I'm honored to have been with you. My pleasure and anytime. Keep it up. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Patrick.